You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live Portraits, featuring intimate, in-depth interviews with Black Hollywood stars and influencers. Black Hollywood Live, Hollywood redefined. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live Portraits, Dario Kristen. Hey, what's up, everybody? You're watching Black Hollywood Live Portraits. I'm your host, Dario Kristen, and here joining me is Courtney Stewart. What's up, everybody? And DJ Jesse J. What's up? Our very special guest today is one of the hardest working men in Hollywood. Oh, yes. We have an, he's an actor, a writer, a poet, a model, Omar Omari Hardwick. I said Omar. Don't Omari Hardwick. You got me so excited. Omari Hardwick. What's up, man? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dario. Thank you for having me. Listen, you have just been doing some really great things. I don't even know how you have time to have fit so much in your schedule. Me to neither, man. Talk to us. Me <laughs> neither. I know. I um, appreciate it. I don't require a lot of sleep, which which I, helps. That helps. You know, I mean, I I feel like it'll catch up to me one day, you know. But 50 Cent, the EP of the show Power. Yeah. He has this concept, whistle while you work. Mm-hmm. And so his thought is, you know, why you got these blessings and these opportunities to be doing things that others wish that they were in the same opportunities to do, then you should whistle while you work. Amen. I like that. Don't don't worry about the sleep. You can sleep when you die. So That's right. You sure can. <laughs> so I'm finding enough uh, <laughs> space in between to sit down and talk to you all about all of that. Absolutely. Oh. Now, you grew Honored up. Honored to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you. You grew up in Georgia. ATL, shout out. ATL. Straight from the deck, shout <laughs> And what were you like as a kid? I know that you, you know, got into poetry around the age of 14, but what was the young Amari like in Atlanta? Uh, constantly in trouble for not being home by the time the street lights were <laughs> <laughs> It was constant for me. I was, um, my uncle was raised as ba- basically our older brother, and then I have an older brother, and so, and then a younger brother. So four boys in the house fighting Ooh, over milk Lord. and cereal. And, <laughs> um, but Pops, was a, he was an attorney. Um, he did a lot of pro bono work, so he didn't necessarily make the money that reflected what he did. But he had us all in sports. We played baseball, soccer, you know, basketball at the local YMCA, the whole thing. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was ironic because the the childhood murders were going on. The Atlanta, oh, yeah, the Atlanta murders, yeah. So that was, a, you know, when I think about it, there was a lot of um, – there was a lot of white flight in Atlanta because yes. blacks would move in and prosperity was finding its way to the middle class to lower middle class family that was actually ethnic um, and, and white folks would move out when we moved into a neighborhood. But there was also the childhood murders going on and um, Auburn Avenue had a lot of movement. It almost felt like a, a 60s, 70s revival wow. in Atlanta, which was a really a cool thing to see. You had Mayor Young, you had Maynard Jackson and, you know, so you had a lot of... Um, a lot of good things, and I feel like Atlanta still has that, but I think it's become a little, a little flossy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a little different yeah. than the Atlanta that I knew. Yeah. I say from childhood to Freak Nick '94, <laughs> I was all good, and then I went to play ball and in college, and and came back and didn't necessarily know Atlanta as much. I mean, it's still home. I'll always, I'll always moniker a label at home, but it, it's a little different. But shout-outs to everybody who, who's watching or listening that um, is from Atlanta. It helped 
you know, bring me to this point of talking to you guys. And you were at University of Georgia, correct? Yeah. On yep. a football, football, football scholarship. scholarship. Yeah. And then minored in theater. Minored in theater. That was a weird artsy job. How did, how did that, yeah, how did that <laughs> An artsy jock. Artsy jock. Um, maybe, you know, as a... As as you talked about, you led in with the fact that I found poetry at, at such a young age, and and then eventually learned that my pops, who went to Holy Cross um, in Massachusetts, your 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 coerts hometown, <laughs> he's from Boston. Um, you know, it was that '70s movement, and and Nikki Giovanni, who I had the incredible opportunity to interview last week, oh, um, yes. which was amazing that I was able to do that. You knew that you were aware of it. Thank you, Courtney. <laughs> and I love her. She's amazing, She's unbelievable. <laughs> so. Um, Pops was sort of in that movement and, and sort of um, at Holy Cross trying to find his way in the world of 70s and being on campus with Clarence Thomas and wearing dashikis, but going to school with, you know, 70 to 90 percent white people. Yeah. And the town, of course, had the same amount. And so um, I found later in life, around the time that I started to write a poem, that he was um, a poet and not just someone who was an attorney at that point but a, a poet and, and I found a lot of his work mom gave me his work and I was reading it and and I think I just once that happens the athlete in you doesn't make an apology for the poet that's in you right mm -hmm. I think the poet was there but I think I was making apologies and you know maybe hiding figuratively the backpack that held poems yeah a lot of kids hide their backpacks literally when they grow up in you know urban environments but why do you feel that is I think because um We've lost a connection of excellence and what it means to be excellent. And I think, uh, you know, when you think about, and you're Greek, so you would understand this, when you think about growing up brown or, or black or in an ethnic environment, the elder ancestors would have made the fact that you were being educated and the fact that you had gone through suffrage and the fact that you were in a race and understood the race that you were in as cool. Yeah, They would label it cool. They came up with the, with the moniker swaggered. Now there's kids that don't even know that that word was used in, in the Harlem Renaissance, that the word swagger was there. And so I think we have, um, we have become a society that has allowed our youth to push us forward and to basically be the judging uh, barometer for what's good or for what's not good. But that's often not good because ironically, what do the kids know? They're kids. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so if they have a barometer for what matters or for what's um, cool, quote unquote, they have mislabeled it, and it's very far and distant from our brown ancestors and black ancestors yeah. and red ancestors and and for the Asian populace, the, the yellow ancestor that said, no, this is cool. Being on a school bus to go and actually study is cool. Wearing a backpack that has books, not guns in it or marijuana in it is cool. And not to be preachy or judgmental, but I think a lot of the kids today are brilliant, but they are, dare I say, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> they are brilliant dummies, and and I think there's a way to bridge the two. In 2014, how would you say we can we can get back to that place, or or maybe it's not going back to a place, but figuring out a way to bridge I, that? I think um, these conversations. I think once you get someone that they that they deem is cool, um, and you get that person aware that you know um, any acting job that that we ever do, any jump shot if you're Kobe Bryant or LeBron James that you ever make. It never trumps the platform and the microphone that God gave you. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing. Not the jump shot with five seconds on the clock. Not Omari in middle of nowhere or, or playing Ghost on Power or Andre and you know Beer and Mary Jane. It's 
it's the fact that this stage was given for a reason. And so if the if the youth deem me or others um, as cool, I think we owe them just to talk, just to sit down, just the arm thrown around their shoulder, just a, a statement to a young girl that looks up to you and thinks that the way to a man's heart is to have sex at 14 years old. Yeah. Just the moment of you sort of connecting with her. I think those little things become a big thing where you look up and you go, okay, 2014, this is the way leaders smell or look. Yeah. Because they don't have the same look as right. what yeah, our parents saw. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah they don't have, the leaders are different now. You know, Tupac was a leader. Yeah. And many from our grandparents' age would say Tupac wasn't a leader. But he was. He yeah. was. Absolutely. For that element, he was a leader. Absolutely. And an activist. And all of it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but going back to um, you sort of in your youth and you're off to college, you're in theater, you're doing football. You're also coming from this experience of education. Your dad's a lawyer mm-hmm. and the middle class that was growing mm-hmm. among black people. Mm-hmm. And there can sometimes be the pressure to sort of follow in those professional mm-hmm. footsteps. Either Absolutely. Either lawyer, doctor, what have Absolutely. you. Absolutely. How did your family deal with the idea that, you know, you're a you pursued pro athletics you ended up going into acting mm-hmm. like how did you was the family always supportive of that or they, that's a great question they were um, they were very different I remember being in acting class Courtney out here before uh, well after New York after a short stint in New York and the teacher constantly would talk about poverty mentality and I never really understood the concept until she said the concept excuse me until she said oh well that is basically black and brown people being promoted by their family to get on first base and to stay on first base whether that means marrying the local giving uh way to a local job having two kids having a small picket fence just making your way in that way and i i looked at it deeply courtney and i realized the reason i didn't understand it is because my family wasn't raising me that way hmm. they they didn't have a poverty mentality now at times, perhaps we all do, um, in the sense that maybe they're enabling folks in my family that are the last ones that should be enabled, <laughs> um, and and giving handouts to folks yeah. that don't have work ethic, and yeah. that's probably the worst thing to give them is a handout. So that if that's under the guise of of poverty mentality, then we all are subject to it because I've equally been an enabler, especially once I started to make my own mm-hmm. fiscal increase um, in life. But I think. Overall, they were like, nah, why get on first base and stay there? Get all the way around the home plate. My dad was real big on, if you are going for mediocrity, that's where you'll land. And I think to be safe is to be mediocre. And it doesn't mean that you're not a tax-paying citizen who's special Mm -hmm. in your own element of being special. But it just means that you can't really change the world if you you settle on that first base. And so I think they were big on like, you know, go do it. I remember feeling that moment, and Lawrence Fishburne talked about it years ago. And obviously, he was a childhood actor, but a child actor. But he spoke about the moment where you go, "Can I do this? Can I actually make a living at this?" And I remember knowing that I could, but feeling like it's too hard. I got to get back home. This is yeah. too much. Mm-hmm. I had all these guys: Hans Ward, Robert Edwards, Champ Bailey, all of these respective college teammates of mine that were making it in the NFL and doing these great things. And I'm like, that was easier. Not that it was easier in the, in the sense that they didn't do work to get there, but it's easier because it's definitively black and white. Yeah. The playbook and the play doesn't lie. So if you don't make the play, you get cut. But in this world, you know, you're losing jobs to people because the twos. You're too short. You're too tall. You're too light. You're too rotund. You're too. It's like, well, but if my talent is better than those five people you pick. Mm-hmm. And so that started to become extremely frustrating, and it was actually the family, uh, to your point, Courtney. My family said when I was ready to give up, they said, we didn't send you 3,000 miles away for you to come back. 
So here's $2,500. Try to get out of the car because I know you're living in the same car that is about to be taken from you <laughs> and and figure it out and keep going. And so they, they really were very supportive. There weren't really anybody in the family or wasn't anybody that was an actor prior, but there were people that had dreams of maybe singing. I had an aunt who wanted to be a singer or grandparents maybe that you know wanted to try a dream, but nobody dreamed back then. So it was really cool that they actually applauded my dreaming and, and thought my work ethic uh, would carry me through. They kind of knew that I was a, a really hard worker who didn't sleep back then either. What was your <laughs> what was your mentality going from uh, you know the East Coast to the West Coast? As far as I mean, so I'm assuming you got in a car and drove across country. I did. I did the drive. I didn't do it initially, but eventually I went to Savannah and bought a green two door. Yes, green two door <laughs> Honda Civic. Hey, those are good cars. They were, like, they last. They're cool. They, they last. You, all you got to do is put water in a, and rub on it. <laughs> it's all good. So, yes, uh, brother, I drove to uh, L.A. What did you expect? Like, what was your mentality? Like, I'm just going to come up there. I'm just going to, you know, like, because, you know, I don't know. what I, I took a lot of cigars. I didn't, I'm not a coffee <laughs> drinker, so I just was like... Black and mouths to normal cigars that my pops gave me, and um, asked a girlfriend at the time. Um, she'd laugh if if she saw this. I, I asked her to ride with me, and I think the big thing was she was like, "I'm tired of being this long distance thing." So she basically was sort of blackmailing me, like, "No, I'm not driving with you until you take us to, you know, make us more serious." <laughs> so I wasn't ready for that. So the drive became solo badolo, and I, I stayed at a couple trucker spots in um, in Arizona. And then I stayed with Shelly Garrett, who put me in the play Beauty Shop. I wow. stayed in Dallas with him one night, wow. which is really ironic. And uh, he was the, the the early Tyler Perry of sorts or, or David Talbert of sorts in that play world. And uh, I made it out here and and found my way eventually to Bud Long at 54th in South Central. Um, Normandy in Vermont, you know, I lived at... at uh, Hancock Park adjacent, you know, you guys said adjacent. Um, <laughs> yeah, you guys told me adjacent in there for sure. Miracle Mile. I did all of LA, man. I really did it up. And I immersed myself in the, um, in the YMCA scene and uh, tried to find a church in, in, a, in a poetry venue. And I found uh, Lucy Florence Coffee House that uh, I got down with Cedric the Entertainer's cousin, Deep Red, and then eventually found the Poetry Lounge, which is still there next to Fairfax High School on Melrose. So I didn't know what the mentality was, I didn't have a lot of money. I just think that back then you feel invincible. You're twenty, you're two hundred pounds. I was still football weight, twenty three, twenty four years old, and and I don't really know. I think the mentality was that of a ball player, which is, I'll make the play. Yeah. And then uh, as you get older, we get in here more. Yep. Yeah. And by the time I was twenty eight, I'm like, I don't know if I can make the play. <laughs> and you know, that's when when my folks were extremely supportive, and uh, you know, hats off to my mother and father for going. No, you you're not going anywhere, and so. I'm here talking to you because they wanted me to stay. Well, we're glad. That's a good family <laughs> right there. And really in cool. 2003, you landed one of your first major roles with Spike Lee, Sucker yep. Free City. And what was it like working with Spike Lee? Um, was funny because he was so into sports, as you know. Yeah. And he was, you know, always like, I love the hybrid that you are. You know, this thing, this athlete meets this actor and actually a really good actor. And, you know, I didn't really want to tell people I played ball because I thought that they wouldn't take me as serious. And so... There's a scene where I sort of ad-libbed, physically I ad-libbed the scene, and um, and, I, and I slapped a kid. And in my mind, coming from theater, you know, I come from stage, so in my mind, you just, you go with it. It's organic. He said something that I didn't, and so the slap came out, and I sort of leaned back, and I realized that it was a very good actor because he went with it. And when we said cut, 
to answer your question, Spike was like, yeah, 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 that's it, yeah, ball player, yeah. And to this day, I'm like, he's a nut. <laughs> he's a nut. It's why I love him. He hired me again for Miracle at St. Anna where we went to Italy. And uh, and he gave the greatest reaction to the fact that I was this athlete meets this artist because I yeah. think he saw the this thing's different, you know. I mean, there's been some in town, you know, there's Ed Harris and Denzel was a ball player and uh Clint Eastwood and you know, there's there's been some uh some football players out there that have done this, but maybe not in the modern generation besides myself and Brian White and Terry Crews. I, I think we would be the three football players that found our way in this. Yeah. So Yeah. And then from that experience, I mean obviously it was your first major film. What did you take from it and learn from it while you were working on the project Whew, so much um spike said to me once dario he said 90 percent of directing is who you cast mm. and so i i immediately realized that the years of watching malcolm x and the years of watching mo better blues and and do the right thing and uh and get on the bus and all of these things he had he had done you you know you you assume as a budding actor that not only do you know you want to be directed, especially if you're raised properly, you don't mind direction. That's what you want. Um, everybody wants discipline, even if we don't act like we do. And so not only are you thinking that, but you're assuming watching these great talents that they are humbling themselves to let a equally great director direct them. Yeah. And so what I learned was he directs, but oftentimes he directs in the sense that he might just stare at you and look at you in a telepathic way of communicating. You know what you're doing already is why I hired you. So he gives you a lane to be as confident as you need to be and not come sort of second guessing, which is a bad thing. The camera picks that up <laughs> as soon as you second guess. And so what I learned was um, that the confidence that, that was imbued in me from my family, from my grandparents through my family down, um, it was a good thing. And Spike only added to it. He also taught me about shots and how quickly you could work if you really knew what you were doing because his shots would be mapped out before we even got to work. Wow. He would get you home to your family by six o'clock. Yeah. We're shooting in Hunter's oh. Point in the environment where people are yelling out, put me in the movie because it's still a very, you know, drug infested, tough environment where mm -hmm. OJ Simpson grew up. So we're shooting that myself, Anthony Mackey, uh, Malik Stroud, Darius Love, Ben Crowley, these guys I'm really still close to and, and, and you're shooting, um, not necessarily thinking that you can get through the entire night, let alone be done by six, because yeah. you're dealing with people that are like, yo, Spike, you in my neighborhood, homes. <laughs> you put me in the movie. And what you realize is that he's so respected and he's so quick that he can't even take maybe four, maybe four shots as a director before he's ready in his mind to move on to the next. Yeah. You know, if you still need some other shots, only if you're Denzel are you going to get those other other shots. And so I learned to work with this rapidity that football is similar. You know, mm -hmm. football is like you got to make the play. We, we got to go. And so that's the thing that um, I think Notori Naughton and, you know, maybe not Gabby as much because she's, you know, done it longer. But someone like Notori Naughton, who's now so close to me on, on the set of, of Power, she knows that Omari's going to be like, we got four takes. Come on. Because then you get in here. And I'm real big on not being in here, you know. Yeah. And so Spike taught me to stay out of this. Just just work. You got the goods, so let's go. You know, and I worked with Cesar Charlon on that, who shot City of God. So mm. the brilliant Cesar Charlon from Brazil, he was the DP. So it was amazing to watch Spike show that I am only as good as, as he said, 
what I cast, cast and who I and who I hire to be my DP and, and the team around. So he's really big on village and, and that was right in sync with what I was raised in. So it was beautiful. And then you worked with him again on Miracle at oh, Miracle Anna, and so yeah. Clearly he loved what you did. He's been a great a great mentor. You know, there's always gonna be comments made about about Spike and his abrasive uh, yeah. approach to life and thoughts and but he's he's forever my guy. I can't say a lot of bad about him, and I'll and I'll always promote whatever he's doing, and I'll always condone whatever he's doing. You know. Yeah. And then you went on to uh, TNT, and you worked on a show called Save, where you were a series regular. Yeah. What was it like the transition of going from you know working in the movie to going to be a serious regular every week, and what was that transition like for you? Well, that transition was interesting because on Saved, in particular, I came in to just audition for a crystal meth addict that was only going to show up in the pilot. Oh. And Darnell Martin, a beautiful sister out of uh, Bronx, who comes from Spike's camp, you know, for East, what you call it, if you come from 40 Acres and a Mule camp. She came from that camp and was hired by uh, David Manson, very dear friend to this day, who was the creator of Saved. David Manson hired her as the director of the pilot. So I read for it, and it was three days of method, like no brushing of the teeth, dirty, no bathe, no bathing, nothing. I was just in. And, uh, she said to me, when I finished, she said, what do you think about reading for the co-lead? And I was so <laughs> at a different, I was really being crystal meth. I was in that. <laughs> and she said, can you go read this? And again, I'm like, I'm like nasty. And like, <laughs> and you know, it's internal. You know, as an yeah. actor, if you know what you're doing, you work inside out, not outside in. So for me, I'm I'm internally not at a place that would behoove me to feel confident as a guy who's a football player, which is what the co-lead was, sack and saved. So I, I went out and read because she asked me to, and I came back and she said, it's not fair because you, you're where you are. How about come back next Wednesday? And the the description of the character she wanted me to then read for was at the initial read um, of me getting the script from my agent was John Goodman, six foot three, redhead, white football player type. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where Omari, five foot ten, African American, <laughs> did play football, but I don't know how that. And she just thought it worked, and I guess because they had Tom Everett Scott, you know, who yeah. was uh, another friend and doesn't live far from here, um, from this incredible studio <laughs> that we are seated yeah. in in an undisclosed spot in Encino, California. <laughs> nice plug, I like that. You know what I mean? Uh, Tom Everett Scott doesn't live far at all, and 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 because they had Tom already, I think that they wanted that sort of like uh, you know the the proverbial West uh, Wesley Snipes, uh, Woody Harrelson, um, Danny Glover, Mel Gibson, yeah. Lita Webb, you know, yeah. and so she just thought that I fit this guy that was a football player. Maybe it wouldn't be as charactery as what it was described in John Goodman, redhead, big. She thought this guy is it as opposed to creating this character of it and so the transition was amazing because i went in to only be in the pilot and ended up as not only not just fourth or or, or third on the call sheet but number two on the call sheet out of, out of out of really going in just to read for somebody that was going to be only in the in the pilot so it was amazing and then of course a season and then tnt brought me back for dark blue so TNT became a family as well, you know. It was really cool. And with doing Dark Blue, I mean, you did Kick-Ass, A-Team, Lie to Me, CSI Miami. Uh, Some of those at the same time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Lie to Me is one of my favorites as well. You know, it's funny you say Lie to Me because we were lying to um, the, we were lying to the director of Kick-Ass, uh, Matthew Vaughn, 
who did not know I was presently doing Dark Blue while I was doing Kick-Ass. Really? <laughs> and, and, you know, I would fly to London. And I would fly back instead of spending the night in London to be on the set back here in That's L.A. Gangster. It was gangster, but it, it got my ass chewed out by oh, uh, by Danny Cannon, you know, the creator, co-creator of Dark Blue, who eventually found out I was... But I was oh, just no. at that place of the career where we couldn't leverage... And no movie or show would wait yeah. for Omari. Who was yeah. Omari? I was yeah. had some talent, but I wasn't, you know. And so, it was interesting. Uh, pun intended. Lie to me. I was doing a lot of lying to me and to others. <laughs> that was really. But I did lie to me, and that was incredible. I did not get to work with my man Tim Roth. Really? Oh, oh man! And every time I saw every every single time that show plays, because I still get like a five dollar residual check from it or whatever. <laughs> But every time it plays, like a week later, uh, BT or something will show Gridlock with Tupac and oh, Yeah, Tim they Rock. do show Gridlock a lot. They show it a lot. It's <laughs> Tandy Newton. Who Tandy was, Newton, yeah. Yeah, who, was, who did for, uh, for Colored Girls with me. And so, yes, it's kind of interesting. That's the closest I've gotten to. And I think Houston's in Pasadena. Tim Roth frequents Houston. But <laughs> I, didn't get to, I didn't get to work with him. But how, how <laughs> did you feel as far as TV versus movies? Was there one you preferred over the other? Uh as far as just creative wise, do you feel like, well, when I work in, you know, TV, I can be a little more freer or, you know, what was that process like? I would imagine, this is another good question. I would imagine that um, because I'm theater based, which is probably, I was telling Felicia Rashad, who's a mentor of mine the other night, I said, you know, that it's, it's nothing greater than, than stage. And I, I believe that. And you see Denzel keeps tiptoeing back and mm-hmm. um, it, it, James Franco, right, did a yep. great of Mice and Men, and and now um, Brian Cranston has been welcomed by Broadway. So stage at its base is my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe being a, a performance poet, which I found in L.A. when I was in New York, I would just sit up and read. But I became more of a performance poet in in L.A. and maybe that has a lot to do with it. And so coming off of to answer your question, coming off of stage and having to look to the right and see movie and look to the left and see TV. I would always say that stage has really taught both of those things, and that's the birth. What it teaches in film is to play it like the crowd is right here. And so if you know the crowd is right here, then you can bring it down a notch, whereas in theater you have to project because their front row is not even as close as you guys are. Front row is a little bit back, and so... Uh, stage sort of taught me in film that film was really fun because I could be really small and minimal and I could and it was quiet and I like I like that I think less is more often mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and so film really it made the the poet in me thrives in film more because less is more and sometimes it's the pauses in between the verses as a poet that actually hit the audience yeah. more than the actual That's verse true. and so um Especially if it's truthful, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not a poet trying to be something, but if you're really reading from your heart, then. And so, uh, TV, I think the athlete in me really enjoys TV <laughs> because again, it's the, let's go. Let's go. We got to get all these shots in. Let's go. You know, and I tend to really be, um, I'm so into team that TV has, has brought you 80 crew members. And I like talking to them more than the actors. They, right. they tend to be, they have cooler stories. <laughs> I mean, what are the actors talking about? The actors have phenomenal stories that they get hired to tell, but often the actors become too actory. Mm-hmm. So the crew members uh, and the drivers, the teamsters, those they're they're like they're everything to me. To a guy raised like me, so TV's cool because I feel like I'm back on the on the gridiron. Yeah, you know. And you mentioned for um, for Color Girls and working with Tyler Perry's film adaptation of that. 
how was that work? Had you heard about the play first of all? Oh yeah, prior you know, to yeah, we was, I would be ousted from the family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What did you think when you first heard Tyler Perry was doing it and making it a film? You know, when I when I first found out about it, um, you know, it was in the hands of of uh, Nzinga mm-hmm. Stewart who was going to write it and wrote it originally and was going to direct it, and so I was excited. Um, I like working with with women, you know, and um. Middle of Nowhere has seen me work yeah. with women, and I mentioned Darnell Martin and Carmen Madden and Everyday Black Man in Oakland, which I don't know, I might have made $10 for it, but it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And uh, and so my heart was giving way to working with this woman because the story, Courtney, was about women. And um, I always thought it was a powerful play because when I saw it at, at University of Georgia, when I was doing Fences and, and uh, Alyssa Strada and and um, Piano Lesson, August Wilson's other piece. When I watched For Color Girls, what I loved about it is that you had to imagine the the men doing these horrible things yeah. because the women were acting out the men and themselves. And so I kind of was hesitant at first because I thought what made it such a great play was that it was the only play of its time, um, perhaps besides the vagina monologues, oh, where they nice. speak about you know, what they're speaking about. But it was the only play of his time and even to this day where these women were were acting out men and you were visually looking at these men that weren't really on stage but were perfectly adapted by the incredible acting of these women so I was more like I don't know if I want to go out for that and then ironically when it left Nzinga and, and it went to Tyler so it left woman and went to male then I was more interested in it because it made me think, well, if a man is doing it, who's obviously um, very comfortable in his sexuality, in the sense that Tyler has played for the better parts of his career, the the character that has made him famous as an actor is yeah. a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he it is not um, it, it it is not not known that he is extremely close to his mom who passed away, rest in peace, and. She looked a lot like Felicia Rashad, and he and I talked hours about the influence of his mother in his life. And so I thought maybe it would be a cool thing for him as much as it is for Darnell Martin to peg me as a ball player. It would be equally cool to see Tyler adapt what women talked about and what women played out as the men hurting them. And so then I was all in, and um, and it's ironic. Many people would think that perhaps I was hesitant once it left Nzinga's hand. Yeah. But I was more all in once Tyler had it because I thought it'd be interesting. Plus, everyone deserves a shot to go against the grain of what they have been doing. Mm-hmm. He had been doing things prior that did not match this. And so I thought, you know, I'm a ball player who, who was an actor. <laughs> I deserve a shot. So, you know, let's see what we can create out of this. And I thought he told some some great stories and incredible acting done in mm-hmm. that in that, you know. It fell upon deaf ears in terms of uh, the numbers of people that saw it. But I think that those that saw it definitely will remember performances and, and, and shots that he created that I thought were really, really good. So I always say uh, hats off to him. And I'm glad that he and Spike, as we forementioned, are sort of talking again and having an amicable, um, if not cordial, relationship of communication at this point. Because they working together could be really, really good. Absolutely. It could Special, change a lot of things. Really, really good. Yeah. And, so, I, and I really believe that. Do you think we'll be able to see you and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing on Broadway? <laughs> I think you just hooked me up. There we go. <laughs> Thank All you, Chris right. Paul. <laughs> Thank you, CP. You're CP4. <laughs> there you go. I'll take it. 
Now you said <laughs> you, I know you have worked with several movie star women uh, from Felicia Rashad, as you mentioned, Whoopi Goldberg, Janet Jackson. What have you learned from working with so many different women that have made you a better man and a better actor? Look at you with a cool-ass <laughs> question. You like that, right? I that was like a that cool one. Like that one that. made me put my arms up. Right, right, right. Um, you, you immediately learn, Dario, certain things you already knew, which is that there's archetypes to women and that they are then tell me if I'm wrong Courtney commonly all very similar like this archetypes to men and then commonly dot 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 ellipses dot dot we're all men <laughs> so you learn that a Felicia Rashad taps enough into her masculine side and that she's strong and in a beautiful way but she's still very much a woman and oftentimes that woman is much ice cream as the one that is really soft in first meeting or perception um you learn that they need more time in the in the makeup chair. <laughs> <laughs> you learn uh you 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 learn that that they are smarter than us. Yeah. Damn. I can't believe you just said that, man. <laughs> there are many men in life that are smart. There are three men in this room that are smart. But I would say that um that the women's ability, the woman's ability to multitask and to think and to be maternal in instinct, not that every woman has a maternal instinct, but to be maternal in instinct, um, it fosters a different approach to the character, if that makes sense as an actor. Um, I remember reading this article, uh, Raquel Welch said that Jim Brown, um, who I adore, uh, and he was in Spike Lee's Sucker Free City with me, she said that when he came into acting that he was too man to be an actor. And it's a hell of a compliment, but as an actor, I fully, Courtney's smiling, I fully <laughs> understand her point as I grew as an actor. And what I realized was a man has to equally tap into their feminine side to be able to act. Yeah, It's art. You You have to have... Um, you have to play a character who's bad, so to speak, and in an empathetic way that leaves people going, but I, I do feel why you did that bad thing. Mm. You have to be vulnerable to seeing partners that are not just your gender, that are that are women. And so, you know, if, if Denzel was man to, to speak um, only because, you know, he is a consummate black leading man who happens to be black. He is one of the greatest leading men of orange to purple in race. Um, but he happens to be black. If if I have to use him as, as an example, because we're on Black Hollywood Live, yeah. then you would say, oh, I get Raquel Welch's point. Denzel, obviously. Denzel can do a scene where he kisses a man on the cheek. Now, in my generation, I saw actors not being confident enough to do that. Yeah. And so uh, I always thought, you know, maybe, Omar, you can really work in this town because you're very comfortable doing that. If anything, my father was the more affectionate parent, not my mom. Mm. So those things for me... Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where I look at women in a way of honoring them. And I'm sure I have my moments of being sexist, but I wouldn't have so many um, women that, that have shown pride in me if if, if I was wrongly sexist, um, if you could if you could label it as that. And so women have perhaps taught me more in this business than, than any man I'll ever work with, because it's also like we said, it's a, a business that our grandfathers couldn't really pursue because it was. Something that if you were Sidney Poitier, you really stood out because your age dreaming doesn't make sense. Even That's though Dr. True. King said, you know, I have a dream, but they didn't necessarily execute 
the dream that they had at that age. And so it's really interesting to see not only men who um, could come from poverty mentality, brown, enclaved families, but also women that are a double minority. You know, whether it be the black women that, that you mentioned or whether it be white women, they're still a minority. That's true. And so for them to pursue a dream and to actually execute in that dream and to um, have done it for so many years prior to Omari coming to a set and working with them, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I don't I don't forget it. I, I will always remember the fact that these are women doing this. Courtney is sitting with you guys. It's still a world, as James Brown said, that as much as uh, women run it and James was brilliant to add that to his song. He starts out going, it's a man's world. And it's true. It's not necessarily anything that is of truth in reality or let God tell it that it's a man's world, but it truly has been treated as a man's That's world. True. It's been treated as a man's yeah, world, true, yeah. you know. And so it's it's been an amazing thing to, to learn from people as young as Notori Norton all the way to, you know, someone as, as old as... Uh, as Felicia Rashad or, or, or anybody that I've worked with even older than, than Felicia. It's been an amazing thing to sit back and just watch these women be fortresses. All right, Omari. Can we get a book from you or something? Right, that's what I'm saying. You don't need a book. You, right, that's that's you don't need a book. I need, I need some huh? lessons or something. I need, I need you to write. All you need, homie, <laughs> is to get a haircut. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, now, see what I was going to do is I'm going to bring my wing. pants, too. <laughs> my chia pet. The DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, you know, I mean, like a motivate. Have like little calendars every day. A message from Omari. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, somebody, you know, they always say, "What do you know?" And then I guess the best cliched answer is to say, "You know what you know." You know. I feel like the older I get, I so don't know a lot, but you know, I do know what I know, and and it's all right. Well, what we <laughs> do know is that you were on Being Mary Jane. I was and on it Being was a Mary huge Jane. Hit. I was on Being Mary Jane. And it was a big hit. It is. You. burning it up on BET right now. I mean, everyone is talking about it. I have people tweeting, calling everything about this show and you specifically. Andre. How did you get involved with this project? Courtney, stop. Put that pillow there. Oh, right, right. 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 You see? You see? I think you. we need a fan over here. You know, like, got a little warm in the studio. Yeah, no. Let me drink some water before <laughs> yeah, every, Everybody needs to quench everybody. a little thirst real quick. Because Courtney about to go in. <laughs> oh, man. You played it really well. Well, Thank you, Courtney. First off, that's humbling. Um, it was Salim and Mara Brock Akil. Amazing. Amazing duo. Amazing, beautiful couple who uh, worked together. And um, years ago, prior to hiring me for Sparkle, Salim had me in an audition for Soul Food, the television show, which at the time Monica Swan was casting and, and perhaps producing and Salim was directing. And I'll never forget, he said to me, you could do anything you want to do in this career. And I came to the audition and, and I was about 30 to 40 minutes late. And he said, you can do anything you want in this career. If you get serious about the professional side of it, your talent is abnormal and you can do things that a lot of people, particularly that look like you cannot do. And you need to really get serious about how serious you want to be about this. Mm. And I was every bit of 28 years old, 27. I had just come off stage playing Orphans, where Robbie Reed saw me play an autistic character in Orphans, the play by Lyle Kessler, who I met later in life and told me he never envisioned a play being done by black people, which definitely stung. Um, and 11 years later, after Salim made that comment, 
he was bringing me in for Sparkle. And I would say not even 11 weeks after Sparkle, uh, rest in peace, Whitney, as we are mm-hmm. going through and to the funeral um, stages, she being the better half of Salim, Mara Brockakil, said to me, Mara, I really want you to play this part. At the time, there was no Andre to it, Courtney. Mm-hmm. The label of the guy was handsome black man. Okay. <laughs> That's as general as possible. And it is so general and so not befitting of a guy that you think could write a book that <laughs> that turns me off. And yeah. I'm not raised like that. And yeah. I'm like, well, I'm... And she said, no, 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 hear me out. And, uh, and Mara is so ridiculously talented and focused that it literally was at, literally was at the repass um, post-funeral mm. that she brought it up to me and perhaps because she was dealing with the emotions that we all felt in saying goodbye to Whitney yeah. um, it felt like a way for her to sort of hug me is what I sensed from her mm. just to talk about something not related to Whitney's passing is what I sensed and uh, you know not like she's this cold callous person who's not even <laughs> respecting it. and it was you know and I just hugged Oprah you know and I was trying to meet uh Jennifer Hudson and I, you know, literally did a bullet line to Jennifer to meet her because I didn't want to talk about it. And so some weeks later, Mara sat me down and, you know, was like, all right, you're going to read the script. Stop running from it. And I read it and I was so impressed. And I was like, wow, this is really good. So I met with her and then Salim joined and uh, at the Soho House on Sunset Boulevard. And they both said to me, this character will have a name a but b he will be someone that you know there's bits of our fathers in this guy there's bits of uncles and you know even folks um that you don't know you know and and this is an opportunity for you to make empathetic this character that is often under not understood or understood to be just this demonic character who's a philandering cheating husband and juggling with gabby's character yeah there's that man who's not necessarily um, able to be understood until we hire someone that we feel can make him a little bit more empathetic and understandable. And so uh, I said, all right, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll do it. And, and if we're going to do it, let's really do it. Same thing I said to Courtney Kim Pogbo, the creator, African-American woman, creator of uh, Power. I said, let's really do it let's make it truthful and you know let's add scenes like the psychologist or psychiatrist scene where it's me and 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 robin uh lee's character and we're sitting there hashing out why i want to go to gabby's character and and why she feels that she's made me as she as she puts it a demoralizing statement to make to a man a a very emasculating statement to make to a man and if you have the right writing and the right support around that story then you do set it up for an actor to make it believable that I would leave a girl who just said she made me. I mean, what guy wants to stay with that? And so once they proved to me that we could make a story and it wasn't just going to be sexual and, you know, Omari and Gabby on the wall this week, next week, Omari and Gabby on this wall. (laughs) Those things weren't easy for me to do. You know, it's not easy to do a sex scene, let alone one that is of a level of virility that is, you know, not before seen definitely on BET. Right. Right. <laughs> and often not seen with black people. Nope. That's true. I used to we always say Wesley Snipes was someone that bravely would go into a place of showing his sexuality mm-hmm. that a lot of blacks didn't necessarily do, you know, and so um 
you know, it was a uh, it was it was a, a friend affair in terms of Mar and Celine bringing me, but also they have a high level of respect for me, and 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 vice versa. I have the highest level of respect for them, so they got me. You know, if it was anyone else, I probably would have been like, eh, yeah, you know, because we never really saw Andre go to work. Nope. <laughs> no, we didn't. And y'all are now talking to a guy that you know works hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, we didn't see the cat go to work. He drove a Beamer. How did he get the Beamer? Yeah. Well, she said she made me. Yeah. So there's that. But at least even in For Color Girls, where I played a hempecked husband to Janet's character, yeah. you at least saw him in his element of work. Mm. This guy, you just didn't even see him at work. And so my, my challenge tomorrow was, you know, let's make it where at least you see the feeling of the guy or the broken feeling of the guy because most men leave on the epitaph when they die here lied a man who did some kind of job right <laughs> and Andre didn't necessarily you know have that I mean the real power or prowess of work was Gabby's character you know and so um, there was a good good uh, round table of conversation constantly to make sure that we put out the best show possible and I've just been humbled man at the response and the reception of being Mary Jane why do you think it struck such a chord with everybody? Because there's so many being Mary Jane. <laughs> there's so many of y'all, Courtney. What do you think of the argument, though? Because there was a lot of criticism about specifically Gabby's character and that portrayal of her. I mean, because Carrie Washington gets the same thing with the sexual situations with yeah. the president and all of that. Like, what, yeah. do you, what do you sort of feel about the criticism? My, ch- my challenge is I understand at times the criticism. Um my my challenge to Mara and Salim is to constantly focus on that which the story is written about. Mm-hmm. The sexual whatever should always be latent. It should always be a, 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 a side thing. I feel like those are two different uh, types of shows, only in the sense that the backdrop of scandal is that of the political regime. Mm-hmm which we all know there is a bunch of that that goes on. Mm-hmm. So it's ironic that there's backlash because it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. President Clinton is still dealing with it. <laughs> that is true. I mean, Monica Lewinsky, she probably wants to follow me and come interview with y'all next yeah. week. She can't get a job. Yeah. She can't get a job. She can't get, she can't job. get an interview. She's no. fighting to get an interview, the right interview. Everybody <laughs> wants relevance. Right. You know, she probably got, I don't know how many. Beyonce I, singing songs about her. I, <laughs> and so you can't necessarily knock what... Uh, what Shonda created with with scandal because it's it's true to that regime. People just don't want to see things up yeah. up front and personal. But it's so funny because they don't want to see it, and then they sneak into that living room and they they rewind and they keep watching it. And so I I think that the criticism um, to the fans who are, are listening who have been critical, I would say I fully understand your criticism as long as it looks like it's just becoming something of of sexual dominance to the show or to the viewer. If you increase the journalistic endeavors of Gabby's character, the world of uh, of of po- politics that plays itself, even in who gets hired as the interviewer, mm-hmm. who plays second, who's the key interviewer. I mean, there's politics and everything. If you play those inner workings, um, then I think it's a it's a fine thing. I think at one point there has to be something where you see Gabby really break down and and. Her character, excuse me, I don't, I don't like to say, but, but her character, Mary Jane, really breaks down and, and gets to that point of understanding that sex is over, 
um, wrought and how much she's having it if there's no love coming out of it. Mm. We have to see her go through that as opposed to just, well, you know what, I'll keep going to this because it feels good. And as long as that thing's missing, this thing will. That works when you're 20. Right. That's college. (laughs) But as an adult, we don't drive 50 miles just to go get some booty. Once you become a grown person, you go nah. <laughs> yeah. So as long as the, <laughs> I'll eat some ice cream, not I'm like fifty miles is like that's cream. a lot. Of, that's a lot of gas. You know, and, and and so even if Gabby's not literally, if Gabby's character or any other character, Andre or any character in it is not literally going fifty miles, and here we are. Yeah. Sometimes in here you're going fifty. You're thinking about that thing too much. It's like let's at least make it where the critics can't say okay. Well, at least I see that truth because that truth is that everybody wants to be loved. They're showing characters of of desired um, heart connection. Gabby's character, my character, we want a heart connection. But I definitely think that the critic does have a voice if you feel like for 60 minutes you're tuning in to just a sex fest. And I don't feel like I see that in Scandal. And I don't feel like I I see that in, in Beer Mary Jane, but I could see where... If we get too sensationalized, even as creators and as writers and directors, with that look, and if we see that people that are young, again, we talked about the barometer of youth, and if they judge, well, the hot thing about this show is that it's sexual. If the youth are who we listen to and believe, then our barometer for what matters could go down, and we could go to this thing where we just start to write here, this is the next episode. And I look at it and I'm like, nah, you must have been reading too much about what the youth want to see. There's still got to be something where, you know, there's a redemptive quality for a person that really set foot into the world of, I want to fall in love. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little messy in my attempt to figure out how to fall in love, but that's what I really want to do. So I understand the critics, you know. I definitely don't think that those shows have gone to a place where they should just be backlash for doing what the character played by Carrie is doing a friend of mine and the character in for color girls and the character played by uh, Gabrielle, another friend of mine is, is doing. I think that at the end of the day, both of those girls stepped into a very good job. Mm-hmm. I wondered if Andre was a little too sexual at times because you didn't see me in a job, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so I'll invite the critics if they go, you know, that brother didn't never go to work. <laughs> His work was these two women. Right. Yeah. You know, we didn't even see me with the kids that That's Robin true. Lee yeah. and my yeah. character. We yeah. didn't really, you know, and so I don't know. Well, and speaking of work, you're working with 50 Cent on uh, the series Power on Star. Yes. What can we expect from this series? Uh, well, um, we can expect a a man who does go to work. <laughs> um, he he goes to work in a in a in a very in a in a very uh, I should say um, dream filled way. Except for the fact that the initial dream was that of just making it out of the hood by way of pharmaceutical distribution. <laughs> um, but underneath that is that eight year old boy. Um, in Ghost, who is really three characters in one. You know, there's the Jamie that has fallen in love or, or, or rekindled a fire with a childhood or high school sweetheart. There's the James um, who the business world um, is meeting and, and the eight-year-old dreamer in me is wanting the business world to meet this guy that I always felt was in me and could be an entrepreneur of, 
of club ownership and even internationally owning clubs um, or, or being the business mogul that we've seen 50 cents life touch. And then there's the good old ghost who no one can really figure out. Um, of course, that's the actual title of the character that we know Jamie and James to be is, is ghost um, every Saturday night at nine o'clock on stars. But I think um, it's just that modern guy or the modern twist on, on all of those heroic, but not heroic men that we know from Pablo Escobar to, mm. to Frank Lucas. If we're talking about black drug kingpins to, um, to Nikki Barnes, you know, to a bunch of other local guys that um, are in your respective cities that you know are pushing a lot of weight in that direction. And, but at the same time and or but at the same time have a dream to actually clean up their life and to be something different and and I wanted this guy to be really involved in his kid's life and to be the Cliff Huxtable who by night went out and did things that you were just like are we watching this on TV you know is he literally um, running a drug cartel and, and putting bullets in people's heads and then going home and playing with kids and speaking Spanish and all of those different colors of um, of Omari and all the different gamuts of emotion that are in me. The the ball player who meets the poet and the the kid who grew up in Decatur but went to a white high school in Marist, um, which is in you know Northwest Atlanta, and played ball at University of Georgia, raised by a lawyer and raised by grandfathers that are both uh, graduates of college and are better parts of almost ninety years of age. That smashed together thing called Omari met never a character as closely related to all of the colors <laughs> in me as ghost is mm. because he's so filled with so many different things and he's bright and he could write books on negative <laughs> shit um and positive stuff you know he he could do both he's he's a very very interesting character and so i think what we expect is something that even with the likes of what uh brian cranston brought to the world with walter white and and Tony Soprano played by Gandolfini. I don't really know if we've ever seen a guy like this um, in the amalgamation of what this guy is. I, I happen to be the black actor who plays it, but I think any race of person playing this character would be something that would draw people to the television set. It's really well well done. What's something that you is kind of hard, difficult uh, for you working on the show? I would say just... Um, Dario likes your question. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I, I would say playing just playing all of those guys, and then and then going home and trying to be normal, and then going back to work and trying to uh, remember that this particular day that I go back to work, for example, might be a day where I have to deal with five different personalities that are going at it, whether it be in the cast or whether it be on the crew, because as number one on the call sheet for me, that was the big thing that I had never necessarily reached prior and so so you're not method acting for this character I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> you're not outside slinging drugs and things like that right I'm just playing with you he was like uh, no <laughs> no the smile answered it oh there's enough method in there <laughs> well alright let's go to the next question <laughs> right. and then there's uh, enough method but there's enough normalcy too I would just say the juggle's really hard for me just the juggle of being number one and having to deal with you know people certain days I can't worry about the character alone when you're number two down on the call sheet all your focus has to be is your character mm -hmm. so for me the juggle's been not necessarily the character but living in that guy trying to not take him home going back to work 
and then realizing I can't just focus on the character because these people have an issue or Courtney wants to talk to me about this or what Gabby went through as the number one on Beer Mary Jane. You know, when you're number one, there's a different level of responsibility. So, you know, and particularly when you might be doing some method things. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a new project coming out that's premiering August 2nd, Middle of Nowhere. Middle of Nowhere. And you worked with Ava DuVernay. I worked with Ava for the second time as well. Um, I've been really blessed and you know, there's the repeat of Spike Lee that you guys uh, mentioned, and also there's a repeat with Ava. You know, we did um, we did two projects together, and, you know, I know that there'll be some in the future, you know, that we do together. And so this was a project that um, saw Emma Yahtzee Coronaldi, who I've known for years, and um, it saw her finally be become known by, by the world and, and really gifted actress. And uh, myself and David Oyelowo sort of support her story. And... Um, it's a story about a couple who are really in love and um, a la Ghost, he does some things that have caught up with him, you know, and, and and it's really about the turn of love and how it can, from one false or wrong move, can, can go in the direction that, you know, yeah. you didn't necessarily dream of it going in. And so it was awesome, man. We we shot in 18 days. 18 days. I think wow. I shot six days on it. Wow. <laughs> and I had to lose 10 pounds within those six days. Ooh, that's transformation right there. <laughs> okay. A lot of cabbage in it. I was gonna say that's like a lot of water and some vegetables. And, vegetables. Oh, and the premiere for that is August Friday, August second. Friday, August the second. Um, no, is that Saturday? Saturday? I'm sorry. Saturday, August the second. Um, eight o'clock. Right here on BET. BET. Better Entertainment Television. Yes. And then now, where can your fans find you and find more information about you on social media outlets and all that fun stuff? Um, they can go to Adomari Hardwick is my Twitter. And um, and the Instagram, because there was like six that were fake, <laughs> um, it's Omari Hardwick Official. Omari Hardwick for the Official. Instagram. And I have a website now that I'm doing a lot more active participation in and actually responding in blogs to fans and, and putting poems on and that's omarihardwick.com so well, or you, you can just hang out with me if you we'll see hang. me on the streets that's right and wait, say what's up if you could describe up. yourself with one word what would it be devilish angel Oh. Devilish Angel with the with the uh, no no hyphen in no between hyphen. so that it's one word like Blackley Blackley shout outs to Blackley of the world well Mari thank you for joining us today thank in you the all. studio it's it been was an awesome. absolute pleasure thanks Dara uh, thanks, you really man. are one of the hardest working men in the business thank and, you brother uh, if I could just take a little bit of your editing you got it you there you there it's all good me for the rest of the and be sure to watch Amari on being Mary Jane on BET on Power on Star and now the middle of nowhere on BT as well on August 2nd which is a Saturday at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Thank you. Where's my where's my camera? You're right there. Right there. Thank you fans. <laughs> Love you guys. Thank you so much. Very humble. Peace. Courtney working your fans find you. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Stuart Starlet. At DJ Jesse J. And I'm at Dario Kristen on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you're watching Black Hollywood Live Portraits and we'll see you next time. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. 
The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.